I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, I am not in studio. In fact, I'm in the Northeast. My wife and I decided to pop up to New York City to catch a couple of Broadway shows for some time away. So you know what that means? Autumn is in charge of the show this week. So just like you, I cannot wait to hear the final outcome. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. We are so excited that you joined us today. The pod's going to sound a little different because Mitch is traveling, but you'll want to stay tuned. I have Elisa Aldape here with me this morning, and then later in the show, Mitch and I will talk with Tony Peck and Alan Donaldson of the European Baptist Federation. You won't want to miss it. Hey, Autumn, guess what time of year it is? Halloween. No. Thanksgiving? No. It's too early for Christmas. People keep telling me. It is a little too early for Christmas. No, it's the time of year when nonprofits ask for money. You know, Mitch, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, it is an exciting time of year because even here at Good Faith Media, we need to, from time to time, ask our listeners and readers to help support this great effort of keeping this message alive. Yeah, the voices of inclusive people of faith are tragically underrepresented, leaving many feeling alone. And then we layered in this global pandemic, which pushed all of us further into isolation. But Good Faith Media provides a space for our voices to unite and impact the world for good. And our daily news and opinion pieces provide thoughtful reflection from spiritual and thoughtful leaders around the world. Our Nurturing Faith Journal is a print magazine that circulates six times a year to churches and households nationwide delivering thoughtful analysis, inspiring features, and Jesus-focused Bible study curriculum. And if you like this podcast, Good Faith Weekly, make certain to subscribe to more exciting and challenging podcasts brought to you by the Good Faith Media Podcast Network. Gather around your device as GFM continues advocating for inclusion for all, justice for all, and freedom for all. You can find more information about this at goodfaithmedia.org forward slash donate. Well, hello, everyone. I am here with Elisa Aldape, and she is a contributing correspondent with Good Faith Media. And we are so happy to have you here, Elisa. Thanks. Happy to be here. Um, I was going to try to do like my best Mitch Randall impersonation. Oh, I'm here for um, that. Yeah. But it's like, it's kind of like smooth jazzy, you know, because he's Absolutely. like. Absolutely. Keeping it on the like, ones and the twos. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, Mitch Randall with good faith. Me, I can't do it. I, it takes too much practice. But I was like, no, don't try to do it on the spot. And here we are. I did it. That's amazing. Well, you're missing like the glasses and the little hat and the cigar and, and all those kind of fun things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're here. It's always hard to talk about the news and headlines when you're just one person because um, it's a lot. And I'm glad to have your shoulders here to sort of bear that with me. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Sure, happy to. Um, so my name is Elise Eldape. I currently reside in Washington, D.C. Um, been here for about 25 years now, November. Born in Texas, raised sort of in Texas, and then um, raised overseas as well. Um, my parents were missionaries in India uh, mm-hmm. for 14 years, and I was there for five of them. Um, after that, went to school in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, because as a good Texas missionary kid, um, everyone thought um, what you were supposed to do was go to Baylor. And so I thought I was being rebellious and went to Sanford, which is like <laughs> Baylor Light. Um, 
Taylor with more humidity, basically, is what Taylor you found with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, so I was like, oh, I'm going to be rebellious and go to Birmingham, Alabama. Um, so and then spent six years in Birmingham trying to, you know, finish school and then figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and then ended up in Atlanta, uh, going to seminary there at McAfee School of Theology and um, spent three and a half, four years in um Atlanta, North Georgia area, seminary, mm. post-seminary. Um, and so really got that Southern training between the years 2006 to 2016. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of, I guess that just mostly just named my like academic who I am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, aside, aside from that, um, I uh, love to hike and I love to people watch outdoors at coffee shops. Um, and it is it, like, it was, it just killed me that I couldn't do that during the pandemic. And so now that things are kind of opening up again, I'm not going to say back to normal. Um, it's been really fun getting to observe people and remembering how we like peopled outside yeah. of our apartments. Um, and, uh, Part of that, in an odd way, has been a really helpful uh, practice for being a writer for Good Faith Media and getting to write about kind of the cross point between faith, politics, and everyday life. Um, So, yeah, that's a little bit of me. Um, I love So, remind me, what age did you move from Texas to India? I was 13. Oh, Um, wow. That's like peak Judy Bloom. Like, you were soaking it in. Yes. And... And so, so for some people, they were always, people have been like, you know, oh my God, like what, that must've been so hard to leave in the middle of middle school or like, you know, right before, you know, all of those important years. And like, if anybody remembered middle school, like when my parents were like, I know this might be hard. I was like, are you kidding me? I can just start over. Yeah. Let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and and like, no one will remember and remind me of the things that I'm ready to like move on from. Like, I'm not going to be Alyssa Pissa anymore. Like I'm going oh, to be yeah. a whole new person. Um, and so, yeah, I moved, moved to India, um, in January of 2001, um, that was, um, no, 2002. So a few months after September 11th, um, wow. and really, you know, like, like I've mentioned before you, we got there and, um, kind of experiencing a world post 9-11 from the other side of the world, um, I think was really eye opening uh, for a kid who grew up. Hispanic Baptist in Texas, mm, um, mm-hmm. just kind of steeped in um, Christian slash Baptist culture. Um, yeah, it was, it was very. So, so, what was that like? And were y'all watching the news as a family? Were y'all discussing kind of what did that look like? Yeah, so I think you know when we, so we got there when, when we arrived to India. Um, you know, I, I think there were. The, the the response to as when people would like oh you're American and you know people were like we're so sorry that that happened and like oh, thank you appreciate that 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 was that was not that was not a great great time um, and also having to hold intention with that that there were other places in the world who experienced that kind of violence and you know they not that they move on but um, you know it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, they don't create songs saying, you know, we're going to come, come at you with, you know, airstrikes brought to you by the red, white, and blue, or like the right. green, white, and orange, you know, like they, like it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't define their culture and it doesn't become part of the, of society or like part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was very interesting experiencing 
you know, that terrorist attack from, you know, from this perspective, from a Western perspective in the States, and then going to another country and hearing the empathy and also the resilience of understanding yeah. this is, this is, you know, this happens, but it doesn't define, it shouldn't have to define you as a person or your nationality. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, really noticing the nationalism um, in, yeah. in America that just kind of like really understanding the word nationalism um, <laughs> was a big piece of processing all of that in another country. That is so interesting because, you know, I think I was, I'm older than you. So I was a freshman in college. I had moved out, had been alone for two weeks when 9-11 happened, oh woke God. up and was like, I'm sorry, what's going on? Um, and so it was, it was a very pivotal moment for me too. Yeah. But I think as, um, my background is in child development. And you think about that frontal lobe that's sort of coming together and starting to be able to make um, executive functioning decisions that are good, not just for you, but for others. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, you know, you and I, even though you're younger than me, like, we don't really remember like a worldview before 9-11. Yeah. Oh my God. And it's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, we talk a lot at Good Faith Media. We write about, um, we webinar about um, Christian nationalism and white Christian nationalism. So do you think that it was exacerbated by 9-11? I've never really thought about that. Oh, 100%. I think so. Hmm. I mean, and I think, so I think before, before that happened, you know, and I, I've spoken about this before, how my family, you know, my family immigrated here from Mexico when my mother was in her early teens. And, you know, they talk about this great conversion for when they came here, they were Catholic and that there was this Baptist pastor who evangelized to them and they became Baptist and therefore left everything behind, almost mm-hmm. as if to be a Protestant, to be a Baptist, to be a good Christian was to be American and to strive to be all of those things was to strive to be white or this proximity to the whiteness. Um, and so while it was never, you know, we never, even though it wasn't part of like, like a Nicene Creed that we said on Sunday mornings of like, we strive to be as best as we can, even though we're not white, we're going to try to be it. Like it sure. was still kind of in the undertones of, um, in the practice and in the proximity and the modeling of white church uh, at at some points. And so, um, you know, there was, there was always this kind of underlying, um, just underlying itch to explore that because, you know, again, if if we, I'm assuming we grew up the same kind of way in this evangelical church, which was always try to be good, always confess your sins. And, you know, if you didn't, you weren't going to get into heaven. And that's exhausting right. to you. Go to bed and, at night and you're afraid. Like, oh gosh, like yeah. I'm still kind of yeah. upset with my sister. Like I'm going to go to hell if I die tonight. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so living under that while also trying to attain whiteness mm. through your faith, I mean, that's just exhausting because, you know, you're just never going to be that. Right. And so, you know, always kind of having that underlying, you know, anxiety within your Christian faith and then getting to a point, getting to a place like um, September 11th. And you're right. I mean, there were so many of us who, you know, 11, 12, 13 and even younger. um, And our teachers and parents were like, there has been a terrorist attack. Instead of shielding your eyes, we're going to make you watch it, Mm -hmm. which I mean, that's not to blame them. Nobody knew what to do. And 
so you have this kind of, as a Brown kid, you have this underlying, like, I'm never going to attain this. Therefore, I'm not a good person of faith. Therefore, maybe God doesn't love me as much as God loves, you know, the white children. Mm -hmm. And then this other, you know, September 11th happens and it, and it unites us and we make it this American thing. And we say, we're all American. And it, it, it was, it's a very, it's a very odd place to be when you're already starting to begin that critical thinking um, and to throw in the country that your parents love so much because, you know, they sacrificed everything to get there, but then also having your own beef with the understanding of what it means to be an American and a kid, a kid of a Christian faith in America. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it's a lot. So I really appreciated the, let's get out of here and go somewhere else for a little while. Yeah. Um, and, and so did your parents, um, you know, they were, so you're first gen American. Mm-hmm. And so, so they, it, it sounds like they may have some sort of differentiated experience than a traditional family who moves here and, you know, assimilates in one way or another to survive and raise a family. Yeah. But then they took sort of, you know, it's it, like girl interrupted, you know, and then moved to India. So how did that, how did that impact you developmentally, like in your faith? Um, so I think one, you know, it was a big wake up call to remember that one Christianity isn't inherently American. Say Um, that. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it was, I mean, it was a big wake up call because um, I mean, one, whether it was understanding how traditional church worked um, and experiencing church in another culture that is, you know, traditionally probably some, at some points more Pentecostal even, Mm -hmm. um, and I know we had that in the States, but I didn't grow up in that. And so, okay. um, like understand like, no, 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 that's not how, that's not how you worship God. <laughs> and like, well, no, that's just not how I worship God or like right. I was told to worship God. Um, and so that really started to crack open. I mean, the clay jar, I guess, um, of just, you know, my understanding or the, you know, the jar that I put God in, um, or the expression of God in, um, And then even going so far as to, you know, really start to see the holes in this faith that I was brought up in. Um, And, you know, and I will even say today, like, you know, when, so, you know, my parents went as missionaries and, you know, in my head, because growing up in GAs, right, you, you learn that. um, Girls in action. Absolutely. I was one. You, you learned that missionaries, like in my head, I had this idea that missionaries were people who wore safari garb and sat around a campfire, translating the King James version directly into a language and then saving everyone on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're that, welcome, yeah, <laughs> like, look what I did for you. I'm so great. Um, and that wasn't what missions was for my parents and it wasn't what it was for them to live a missional life. And I was thankful for that. And also, you know, there was still that underlying hope that the people that they, you know, that they were around would, you know, yes, they didn't, you know, if they, they weren't there to solely convert people, you know, but there was still this underlying, I'm doing this because this is my faith. And I would hope that you would have this faith. And so it was very interesting going back and like during seminary. And it felt almost as if like a pardoning of my own sin and understanding of Indian culture and religion and faith, because 
I went in thinking so many different, like just this very American Western view, which is so funny coming from a culture that was colonized just as much, like, like it was like my own traditions and faith and, and, you know, traditions were all colonized and, you know, just kind of erased at some points and then going to a country as a Brown person and then being like, this isn't how you're supposed to do it. Like, come on. Yeah. And so I think going back during my seminary career, as I was deconstructing and realizing, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know crap about crap. And to think that. (laughs) T.M. Elisa Dolpe. (laughs) (laughs) T.M. T.M. (laughs) T.M. Like it, it was just, it was important to, you know, to recognize, I think that there's, there's no, no country and no Christian faith has any right to put God or, you know, divinity in a box in a jar mm-hmm. and say, we have figured it out or claim a God for their own country and say, this is, this is what everyone else um, needs to, needs to. Or understand. country for their own God. Yeah. Right? Which it seems a bit wag the dogish here in the U.S. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like your deconstruction sort of started when you were in India and then, mm-hmm. and, and maybe it sort of, you know, continued, you're mentioning that it was happening in seminary. I'm wondering what that looked like during your undergrad at Samford. Oh my God. Yeah. So like I said, I went to Samford uh, because I was being rebellious. Um, <laughs> I think it's so funny. Um, so I went to Samford in Birmingham and, um, you know, like, in, so I, I myself knew I needed one because I was homeschooled and I wasn't around big schools in my life. And so I knew I needed a smaller school because I would just get eaten up alive at Baylor just because it was so big. Um, and, and also just because, you know, just again, that whirlwind of deconstructing in India and um, needing to, I guess in a way for lack of a better term, reset and kind of, mm go back and say, okay, I need to be around. I need to be in a Christian surrounding just to help me kind of get back to this, like, well, what do I believe? And, um, Hey, this is a Christian school. Maybe they'll be like nice and understanding and not that they weren't. Um, but I think, I think being a Brown kid from South Texas and not really being around a lot of white people for a very long time. And then being in India with other Brown kids, um, which is, it had its own sets of, you know, cultural, culture shock. Um, but being in, being in, in Birmingham at a predominantly white institution, um, it really started to kind of poke holes again in an understanding the underlying racism in this state mm-hmm. that I had started to be noticed when I was younger. Um, and, uh, you know, it was very confusing to me because, you know, really like this understanding of Christianity or being a good Christian person was either my parents who were there to do mission work and that underlying colonialism of conversion. And so that was my biggest understanding of Christianity. And then coming to Sanford and like, there was very clear at some points, very clear roles that good Christian girls and good Christian boys played. Um, and, and it's so funny because we're in a, you know, we're in, 
we're in a place that is academically rigorous and right. you know, students are very smart. And, um, you know, I had classmates who were working on like growing cancer cells in the science labs yeah. and, and then in the same breath, say something like, well, you know, according to David Platt, women and men are created differently to complement each other. And one shouldn't, you know, women shouldn't actually be head of the other. Like you're growing cancer in a Petri dish. How do you believe this? And, and it, it, that, that I think for me was the big, that with the two things that I held in attention during my years there was that you could be really, really smart. And also, and, and I guess that doesn't negate the other, but it was very difficult to find to, for me to, to separate the intellectual and the faith yeah, and people just kind of blindly accepting like, Oh no, well, this is how I've always read and understood scripture. And I'm going to prescribe it to my role as a male or female or like a, you know, a woman or man or a straight person. Um, but then also be so brilliant Mm -hmm. and really try to do some gymnastics around avoiding those bigger implications on my faith. It's really interesting and such a paradox that those students that you're describing, especially in the science world, right, that they would think science is big enough for me to push the edges of this, for me to test it, for me to like move beyond what I knew before in high school and do some different things, but not so much with God. Like my God is still the God I learned on a felt board and like that's good enough. Yeah. So why is science and why is God, right? I'm writing this down. Because maybe that's the name of a book. Felt board got any, anybody steals that. TM right here. <laughs> October 28th, 1135 AM central standard time. <laughs> you, can tell, you can tell we're coupled up with lawyers in our houses. Can't you? <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes. Yes. Well, he's, he's on the other room, so I can't, he can't, he can't trademark it here. So, but I'm glad, I'm glad you could trademark it here. Um, yeah, no, this understanding of God kind of only, right. It only, it, it can only go so far in a border, um, that you've confound God or confined God in. Um, yeah. And so I, and especially, you know, I was in college when Obama, Barack Obama was running for president and, um, and even that was very telling, of, again, the underlying racism found in American Christianity that is focused in the South. Um, again, cause that is the Christianity that I, mostly experienced. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was so funny because before we had the, I voted for Obama liberals, you know, we had the, you know, well, you know, I don't see color and, you know, I think every, it just, it's not that he, it's not that he's a black man. It's just that he really wants too much change. Um, and, you know, he, but then the whole thing was like, but he's a Christian. Like he goes to church. He, he, he claims the same faith that we do, but like, Mm -hmm. No, it still didn't matter. Um, His middle name is Hussein for crying out loud. Oh yeah. I think someone remember that an article saying that he was like a closeted Muslim. Oh, that's all I heard. Yeah. In central Uh, Texas. Absolutely. And, and, and so it was, again, I think that was another movement of understanding, like things weren't as they appeared to me in my understanding of American Christianity. Mm. Um, and again, like the, you know, the lip service of we are from all people in their, in their calls to God. And yet, you know, there was, you know, one woman in university or like two women in university ministry, and then the rest were men. Um, and, and it was just, again, it was the lip service and, mm-hmm. you know, 
and that's not to say that was just, you know, strict, like only Stanford. I mean, I got to seminary and realized the same thing about my denomination. Sure. sure. Um, but I think Stanford, I think was the bigger, one of the bigger places that it really began to crack open my understanding of the faith that I grew up in um, and the faith that taught me about God. And I, and I want to say that because, you know, I think oftentimes when you, when, you know, when we, for people who, who identify as progressive and are, cha- you know, we're changing, right. We're constantly evolving. Like I want to be, I want to be clear that I'm very thankful for that faith that brought me up because yes. without it, I wouldn't have certain passages memorized. I wouldn't know how to play with a felt board. I wouldn't know about girls in action, which let me tell you, low key is how all women in churches have probably been radicalized because we were like girls in action and knowing that we could change I have two the words. World. I have two words for you. Molly yeah. Marshall. Have you heard <laughs> Molly talk about her GA experience? I have not. Oh, it is, I'll send you the link. It's brilliant. <laughs> She was like, first okay. of all, they were gaslighting you, but yes, also you're, you've been radicalized. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think that's the real, that's the real power move we need to bring back is the girls in action on Wednesday nights. We're, um, you know what, Elisa, we're still in action. We really are. We actually, we're girls in action right now. We are. That like, it's just really touching to me, you know, like it's a sorority within the church and we were learning about how people were being Jesus in yeah. their world. And here we are. And here we are. Look, look at what it did to us today. (laughs) So yes, you can be thankful for the faith that raised you and then keep on growing. Keep on growing. Take these beauties for ashes. You know, like the song says, I'll take this beauty for ashes. I don't remember the song. Wasn't that like a contemporary Christian song back in the day? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it absolutely Um, was. Okay, so you, it's so interesting that you're talking about Samford because there was a lot of hullabaloo about Samford in my newsfeed yesterday. What in the world is going on? Okay, so let me, let me try to break it down. Um, And there's several, I think there's several factors to this. Um, So I believe um, the new president of Samford University, Beck Taylor, um, you know, they were having a bunch of inauguration events. I don't know the actual schedule, but one of those things was going to include a lectureship um, with John Meacham or historian John Meacham. Um, everyone kind of knows him from different, or if you know of John Meacham, you know he's written um, autobiographies about some pretty great people. Um, he's a historian. Um, he wrote, he spoke at uh, George Bush's funeral um, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote, Joe Biden or President Biden's acceptance speech. I mean, this like he doesn't seem like, like he's not really a controversial person. He's like, oh, he's a he's a well-known white historian in, you know, who who writes and is a great storyteller as well. Um, and most recently, his most recent book is called His Truth is Marching On. Um, mm-hmm. it's a story of John Lewis and it's brilliant. And I just finished reading it about two months ago, and it just made me love John Lewis even more. Um so he was invited to uh, to be a lecturer um, at these inaugural events, and um, when I think I guess somebody in the there are some students in the student body at Stanford who caught wind that at some point John Meacham has spoken or has given money to a local parent Planned Parenthood chapter, um, and so some students started a petition, and I believe they got about a few hundred 
signatures um, to ask to uh, to withdraw the invitation to John Meacham. Um, and then a, a couple of nights ago, I think it was Tuesday night, um, the Student Government Association held a town hall um, to discuss it. And I mean, it, it wasn't great. Um, and so as a result, uh, Dr. Taylor essentially withdrew the invitation to John Meacham to come to Stanford. Um, you know, the, the apologies, I think there's a big state, there's a statement on Stanford's website, I believe. Um, and he says, now is not the time we shouldn't, you know, it's time for unity, not a time for divisiveness or something. Um, so, you know, we'll have him come back at a later time. Uh, okay. There's and- some deeper, like theological <laughs> things that I know we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that like, as a Southern woman, just the the manners of it all to withdraw an invitation like there are pearl necklaces that need to be returned because that's mm. your southern hospitality card right there mm. and and it's been revoked you don't and, i mean just it's just such bad form oh yeah and and you know if i had i because i've spoken to a couple of my former professors who were able to give some more insight um you know i and again, this goes back to, I mean, this was started for, this was a movement started with this through the student body. Mm-hmm. You know, these were students who created this petition who said that this man's association with Planned Parenthood does not reflect Christian values, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so again, when I come, you know, when I've spoken about, you know, Sanford, you know, it is, it is a tough school. It is, it is full of smart students while also full of young people, I think, who are at a crossroad and I think fear the change that comes Mm. with expanding your mind and the reason I think it hit me so hard when I heard this that it was students involved because I knew that that like that was my experience there that was the experience of how can you hold these two things and pretend that they're not you know that the to deny to how can you deny one and hold the other accountable this is true also saying, but this isn't. Um, and so, you know, I, it just, it was disappointing. It wasn't surprising. It was disappointing. Um, and, you know, I think, so, you know, he's, it, and it's so funny again, like I've said, you know, John Meacham, he is not, he is not a divisive person. I mean, he's written for Democrats and Republicans. He's written for moderates, conservatives, progressives, um, and, and again, and I find it ironic that the man who just wrote a book about a, a man from Alabama, mm-hmm. you know, his, his, his invitation to speak at an Alabama school has been withdrawn. You know, at some point I get, I get that the student body is, you know, the power in direct action is important. Student action is important. And also faculty and staff are there to challenge, you know, to challenge them and to help them grow and expand mm-hmm. their minds. Um, and it very much felt like none, that was not, that did not happen. Yeah. And I think, I think it can be, both of them can be true. We talk, we've talked quite a bit over the past year and a half or so with Emma Fraley, who's now one of our interns, but she was, she was the head of, um, Gamma Tau Alpha at Baylor, which was the LGBTQ student organization that was just trying to get, um, earn their spot as a student organization so they get could get funding and be an official student org and they were they still do not have she's graduated she's moved on and she talked a lot about how like she loves Baylor and she chose Baylor for a reason but that doesn't mean that she can't encourage them forward to keep moving and let you can love a place and want it to be better at the same time and it sounds like that's sort of how you feel about Samford 
you know, I, I think that's a, that's a really good, and it took, it's taken a very long time to get to that place, but yeah, yeah you know, this was, this was the place that had the, the most faith in me in my academic career um, or beginning of it. And holding how hard it was while also holding that this was the place that I loved. You know, I, I discovered my love of research and of history. And it was the place where professors who were the ones who challenged me to ask who's, who gets to say that, who gets to, who gets to be, who holds the power of narrative, Mm. who gets to tell the story and all, you must always pay attention to who gets to tell the story and ask why, why the story doesn't include other voices. And so I love Stanford for that. And I love it so much that I want it to be a place where young people are challenged to expand their minds mm-hmm. and really, you know, faculty and staff to challenge, to be challenged as well. Um, and so, yeah, trying to hold both. And, you know, again, you know, we talked about it earlier with, you know, the small Baptist world that we live in, of course, you, you know, like you said, this, the Sanford stuff was, you know, filling your feed with people's takes on it. Um, it's such a small world and it, you know, uh, there were some people who were like, well, no, that, you know, you don't want to stir up trouble. This is a good, this was a good move. And, you know, it just, again, that middle ground, um, this idea that, that finding a middle ground or unity doesn't mean growing pains is, is it a very, it's an exhausting narrative or an, yeah. um, and there will not be any, there will never be change and there will never be good progression if there isn't the growing pains and if yeah. there isn't, you know, some push, uh, to change. And, um, yeah, I think these things with Stanford, when these things happen, because this Baptist world is so small, um, and because surprisingly, I know so many people who went there. Um, it, it reminds me again of this understanding of like cracking open this worldview that I've always, that I've held that says, this is, this is just how it is. Um, and every so often it reminds me like, yeah, these, these systems and these worldviews need to be disrupted and changed because clearly it is excluding a, a group of people or it is excluding someone or hurting someone. Yeah, that's, and, yeah. And, and you're exactly right. The Baptist world is small and that we all sort of know each other and that holds us more accountable. Um, but it's also, it's growing and the tent is getting larger and you know, I'm so thankful that, you know, you and Starlet and Emma and Jamie have joined us both, you know, as either as, as consultants or interns or as employees and all those kind of things, because your voices are important in continuing this. And we are the ones that are going to continue this faith. And so just really thank you for, for your time and for your wise words today. And um, just really thankful that you were here with us this morning. Thank you, Autumn. I appreciate it. it Absolutely. Glad to be here with you today. Yeah, we got to kick Mitch out of the studio more often. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to kick it over to Mitch to introduce our guest for the second part of this podcast. Thanks, Autumn. That was some really great stuff. What a great episode. Well, the greatness continues because Autumn and I previously sat down with the new General Secretary for the European Baptist Federation, Alan Donaldson, and his predecessor, Tony Peck. We talk about all the things that are going over on in Europe right now among Baptists and the work that they are doing. It's a really interesting interview, so stay tuned. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas a womanist in ministry, and the host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. 
It's season two, and we're still talking about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. This season of The Raceless Gospel has eight episodes, eight podcast church services. The doors of this church are open, and we're going to talk about the sticks and stones we carry faithfully that break the skin and bones of Christ's body. And on each episode, we're joined by those who bring perspective and insight as to how we set these broken bones and perhaps make things right. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, eight episodes. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we discuss the church in North America's bodywork. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we've got some very special guests with us all the way across the pond in Europe. We've got uh, both the former General Secretary and current General Secretary of the European Baptist Federation. EBF is comprised of approximately 800,000 members in 59 member bodies in 52 countries, stretching from Portugal to the far reaches of Russia. They are working continuously to help strengthen the relationships of these countries, whereas of now there is no no formal union existing. Tony Peck recently retired as the General Secretary of EBF, and he resides in Bristol, England. Alan Donaldson is the newly elected General Secretary of EBF, and he lives in Glasgow, Scotland. Gentlemen, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, Autumn. It's good to be here. Well, Tony, let's uh, begin with you since you recently uh, retired. First of all, congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. It, it's it's not quite happened yet, Mitch. We're having an overlap month. Oh, uh, good, 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 good. So, uh, but I will officially be retiring at the end of this month of October. Ah, well, congratulations. I, I know you're looking forward to it. Well, over your tenure as General Secretary of EBF, uh, let's just kind of hit some of the highlights. What are some of the uh, memorable moments for you as General Secretary of the European Baptist Federation? Well, thank you, Mitch. Yes, uh, it, it's hard to believe that I actually managed to do it for 17 years. Um, and, uh, you know, you can look back and uh, and not see the changes that have happened. I think one of the highlights has been a real strengthening of fellowship uh, between the member unions. And they're very diverse in Europe. I mean, Baptists are diverse anyway. But, you know, in the EBF, you've got every shade of Baptist you could think of, and maybe one or two you'd never thought of. Um, and, uh, and, and so uh, the sign of all this for me is the very high number that support our annual council when our leaders come together. We have 59 member bodies, 40 to 45 of them will be represented. And when I look out on that group, I, I think where else in this region would that group come together and be able to sit down together with their differences and their diversity, but somehow find this central, I don't know what it is, the unity of the spirits in the bond of peace, perhaps. Mm. That that that's been a major strengthening, I think, during my time. I think the 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 other thing that I would uh, mention is that we have managed to develop some key areas. Um, one would be our commitment to human rights, religious freedom. I think when I came, it was largely down to me, etc. But now, you know, we've got a little team. 
who have become quite skilled um, at uh, drilling down into the issues, showing us where we can take up the issues in the United Nations and elsewhere, and obviously keying into what the Baptist World Alliance are doing. And, and that's been a real joy. And the third thing I'd mention is that um, for the last six years, we have really wanted to get stuck into the issues of migration in Europe. Now, it began with the Syrian refugees coming through the Balkan route um, and, and towards Germany, but it's got so much more than that. And so we've created a commission on migration now. We've just appointed a part-time staff worker um, to help us to continue to develop migration issues. We hear about Afghanistan and people coming out of there, uh, Syria, moving across Europe, places like East Ukraine. There's all sorts of areas where we've really wanted to um, support as EBF and as churches, as unions, uh, the issues of migration. So those, those would be some of the things anyway. So Tony, you mentioned uh, in your, your first point was just the, the collaboration among Baptists, the diversity among Baptists uh, within Europe. You know, here in the States, uh, there is also diversity, but there's also separation among Baptists. Uh, we here in the States are really good at uh, dividing ourselves and uh, doing our own things within our own factions. Um, is is that common in Europe as well? Because uh, when I attended the EBF meeting a couple of years ago, I was witness to some really, uh, I thought, uh, just incredible conversations. Uh, for example, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the the meetings with Ukraine, uh, Russia had. Uh, uh, had recently moved into Crimea, uh, but I saw Baptists from both Ukraine and Russia come together to work on a resolution talking about the crisis that uh, that was unfolding in Ukraine, and they did it in such a graceful and um, uh, just a, a wonderful Christian spirit coming together. Uh, I don't think we would see that here in the States, so tell me a little bit about how European Baptists are able to come together and address these important issues in a real meaningful way. Yes, well, even in you know in the EBF itself, we have this issue of separation that that does come. We we do have unions that that split sometimes, and we're sad about that. We've had examples while I have been general secretary. We've got a couple of ongoing ones at the moment, but just to take your specific example. That, that meeting in Lviv, I think, was one of the first times that the Russian and Ukrainian leadership had come together. And I think this is one of the things the EBF can do, is to provide a platform for such things to happen much easier there than going to one another's countries. Now, actually, that was the culmination of a few years of us urging them to come together, doing what we could, not always succeeding because the feelings ran very deep. And it's not just about the Crimea, it's also about Eastern Ukraine, about the uh, Donetsk and um, Lugansk provinces, um, which, which are now occupied, and, and the position of the Baptists there. So you're right, it was a joy to see that. It helped that there had been a change of leadership um, in one of the unions, in, in the Russian Union. And, and suddenly, things are possible. But it, it takes a lot of work. I think the work of reconciliation is is hard work, actually. It doesn't just happen often, but it was it, it was lovely to see that. So 
we have tried to make the EBF a place where that can happen. We don't always succeed, but but certainly it's something that we aspire to. Well, it was great to see, and I appreciate being a part of it. Yeah, that reconciliation is hard work, but it's holy work, mm. you know, and that's yes. a really special place that you all are holding. Alan, congratulations on your election as General uh, Secretary. What is your vision for EBF as we look forward into the future? Well, thanks, Autumn. It's uh, a real challenging but inspiring role they've given me and a real challenging and inspiring person to follow. I mean, Tony has just done incredible work for 17 years. Uh, for 12 of them, I've been on the Council of European Baptist Federation and been sitting watching him in awe as he names everybody in the council, sometimes as many as 150, 160 people gathered in one room, uh, and he just knows their names, he knows their situations, and uh, there's a a fabulous job of making everyone feel welcome. So, so the big challenge is, is not to be overdaunted by my my predecessor because he's he's done such a great job of it. But as I as I look into the future, we're coming out of a period of pandemic in Europe. Uh, at least we hope we're coming out of it. We're certainly coming out of a, a phase of it, and there's a a real challenge to help our churches and uh, unions, associations across the region to grow in steadfastness. Uh, mm. This is a time where we're going to be called to go again and then to go again and then to go again. We will have many false starts where we think things are getting back on their feet and then they just die back down. And so a big part of my role, I believe, is going to be encouraging the leaders who encourage the local pastors to keep on going, to encourage the evangelists to keep on going, to encourage the church planters not to give up, because this is not an easy time to do church in Europe. It's particularly challenging. So really calling them to steadfastness and, and, and keeping fanning into flame, as Timothy uh, was told by Paul. Uh, and I guess the other one is to keep that level of relationship and, and partnership going, and really developing an understanding of what partnership is. Uh, for for many years, partnership can have been somebody coming alongside and saying, I'll be your partner and I'll tell you where to go and what to do and how to do it. And we really have been working hard on what partnership means as getting alongside and firstly listening mm -hmm. and asking questions and saying, what resource would help you? What prayer would help you? How can we get alongside you? so that we can best develop what you have already in the nation uh, and make that long-term sustainable. So developing that sense of quality partnership is going to be a huge thing. And I think leadership development. Uh, I was a general secretary for best part of 10 years in Scotland, uh, leading a small union of 162 churches, 250 ministers or chaplains out there. And the one thing that I discovered was that once you become a general secretary, where do you get leadership development? You can, you can go and do a master's course and become more academic, and I did that, and that was great and helped me in many ways. Or you can go on and do a PhD and, again, continue down that same track. But one of the things I'd really be keen to look at is how we develop our general secretaries, how we develop the leaders of our mission partners, and how we put them in a peer-to-peer -peer relationship that helps them to grow and develop uh, and experience the full width 
of our EBF area. Uh, so that it's not just the Western Europeans working together or the Eastern Europeans working together, but it's those from Central Asia and the Middle East working with the West and the East and, and, and bringing groups of leaders together to grow them and develop them. Well said. Well, there are a lot of issues that uh, the European Baptists have been facing over the last several years. Uh, your website, uh, ebf.org, has some great information about uh, all the work that's going on across Europe. But uh, let's begin with the pandemic. Uh, all of us have been uh, kind of muffling through the last 18 months. And so, first of all, we're hoping that uh, everybody is healthy uh, in your uh, in your families, uh, in an EBF, but how has the pandemic affected EBF's work over the last 18 months? Well, if I, if I begin, and then Alan will probably yeah, have sure, things ahead, to say. Um, but I, I, I think that uh, what the, the, the downside has been the, the lack of face-to-face -face meeting, which we regard as really important for us. That's That's where we if I put it this way, growing grace together. <laughs> mm. um, and, and there's no substitute for that, even, even with the best of online meetings. However, the upside of it is that some of our churches and unions have now been almost forced, but have taken on thinking in creative ways about how can we use this situation? How can we use these opportunities? So I'll give you one example. Uh, the 3D church in Estonia that, that won the evangelism prize of the, EBA, of the BWA earlier this year, um, the first thing they did, there are many young people, they organized something called a hackathon. I had no idea what that was, but I understand it's where um, in the IT world, people come together and intensively discuss uh, the future and how they can solve some of the present problems. And, and out of that came a series of ministries that were possible during the pandemic, you know, counseling ministries and, and things like that. So we have a number of good stories there where unions have really taken on the challenge. There are others that, you know, have been a little bit left behind, and those are the ones we need to really, really care for. As Alan said, you know, that there's going to be, we don't know how we're all going to emerge from this. Um, as far as the EBF's concerned, we actually did, for the first time, divide our um, region into five parts, and we had regular meetings of leaders. Well, actually, we saw some leaders that we never see at our council. So those were very helpful times. It was just for people to share where they're at and to experience a level of fellowship. So it's been a mixed picture, but I want to emphasize this possibility of creativity as well that might carry us forward a bit into the future. That's great. So, Alan, here in the yeah, States, uh, Alan, here in the States, one of the things that uh, the church has been working on has been trying to uh, combat misinformation about uh, COVID-19 and the vaccine. Um, is that going on in Europe? Uh, is, is the church having to stand up and basically advocate for people being healthy and responsible and uh, getting the vaccine? Because we're, we're just... We're blue in the face, so to speak, uh, here in the States trying to talk about this and advocate for it. So that's going to depend where you are ah. uh, in the, the European Baptist Federation area. Um, 
The, the UK has had a huge uh, uplift of the vaccine, as has most of, of Western Europe. But it's not exclusive, and there's a younger generation that are a little more hesitant, maybe than an older generation. Uh, folks over 50, like myself, were desperate to get it. Uh, for the protection that it was giving as we were watching friends and family die of the disease. So uh, it was very straightforward uh, decision for many of us. But there are other places where there is a little bit of uh, hesitancy around. It hasn't been a big issue in Western Europe, but Tony might be better placed to answer how it's been elsewhere. Yeah, yeah I think uh, in other parts of Europe, there has been a mixed picture. Um, I have to say that some of the information that you're referring to that might be in the United States does find its way over um, through some agencies, you know, in, into places like, like Eastern Europe. And, and I think that, that, that there have been some of the same objections that, that you would find in, in the States in some places. One of the things the EBF was able to do is we did have uh, an online seminar on the vaccine, oh, uh, vaccination issues. And I think that was quite helpful because we had three top specialists who were connected with EBF countries um, talking um, and, and sort of reassuring and answering some of the questions about what was in it and, and all those kind of things. I think education helps, but I think that um, there are some people who who've just got it into their heads that this is not a Christian thing to do. Yeah, we like I said, we've been advocating for it for 18 months now, just being responsible, mm -hmm. wearing masks, social distancing. Yeah. And then once yeah. the vaccine was rolled out, uh, making certain that everybody uh, got the jab, so to speak. But uh, there's been a resistance to it here in the state. Uh, misinformation is running wild. And and uh, it's just it's a shame. I mean, we should be completely out of this by now, but uh, we're still dealing with variants and uh, and still trying to encourage people to do the right things. So glad to hear things are going well in Europe. Yes. Alan, we've hit on it a little bit. Can you talk a little bit more about EBF's stance and support of people who um, are immigrating within Europe? Yeah, we've, we have uh, politically right across our area. A, a wide variety of views about migration and immigration, asylum seekers, refugees, and you have to be careful not to mix up those categories at times. Um, and uh, politically, they're welcome. Politically, they're not welcome. And that has a, a knock-on effect in the church's response. But we also have a history of uh, being refugees and being migrants within uh, the EBF. So there, the, the Balkan area uh, of our area uh, has had times where they were on the move uh, while they were at war. And uh, so they received welcome elsewhere and therefore they want to be welcoming mm -hmm. in, in their nations. So you will get a wide variety uh, across the, the board, but we have developed uh, a whole understanding of what is happening within Europe with migration. Uh, we've asked all of our unions uh, what they're doing in the migration area, whether it be as a union collectively, or whether it be one or two individual ministries in local churches that are addressing uh, migration issues. And we have a growing picture of what's been happening, probably really quite uh, a tight picture over the last five years and we're going again and mapping once more what's been happening and that's one of the projects that's underway just now and we have a commission on migration 
and Helerich uh, heads that up for us at the present time with uh, Will. And uh, Will's come over from Virginia and we were able to employ him there in Vienna and he's working away at uh, looking at what's happening. And, and Vienna would be one of the places where many quality migration ministries are happening, where people are being welcomed, where they're being cared for, where they are being helped to integrate, where they're getting legal support, uh, as well as pastoral support, and where we're seeing churches growing as a result of the welcome uh, of the outsider, the welcome of the person who is visiting or the person who is hoping to stay. So part of this uh, immigration issue that we're dealing here with the states, and I assume that uh, it's, it's part of the same issue uh, there in Europe, is uh, racial justice and where, you know, predominantly white community here in the states looks to our southern border. We see uh, people of Latin descent, uh, also more recently Haitian descent, uh, who are looking to make a better life for them and their families. Um, how does EBF combat racial justice uh, in such a melting pot of, uh, you know, of a continent where there are so many nationalities, so many cultures that are living together and immigrating uh, across borders? What, do you find that work difficult? Do you find it difficult? Uh, that churches are receiving that work well. How do you deal with racial uh, reconciliation and racial justice uh, in Europe? Shall I start, Alan? Um, it, actually, it's not an area that we've developed that much. I, you know, I confess, um, and it's partly because we, we're not very diverse. Uh, say, in our EBF Council. Now, it's perfectly true that if you go to London or Paris or any of the um, the big uh, capital cities in Western Europe, it is a melting pot. The issue with, with uh, migration particularly has been more, and of course it has a racial element, but it also has a religious element, mm -hmm. that, that the issue really has been, can um, Baptists sort of participate in the welcoming of people from another faith, usually Islam, you know, coming into their country. And where Alan talked about the political situation, where politically that country is not being welcoming, sometimes the churches have gone along with that. Then we have to remind ourselves that Baptists believe in religious freedom for all, you know, and, and from that freedom come other freedoms. So, that's the way the question has been framed for us uh, in many ways. However, there are issues of racial justice, particularly in Eastern Europe, which during communism were fairly, you know, kind of monochrome communities. And, and there have been some, some issues where people from another part of the world have come to study or something have experienced discrimination. But it's that interreligious element that I think that is more prominent for us at the moment. Yeah. So over the summer, Alan, uh, there were a lot of floods that took place in Western Europe. I know EBF uh, responded uh, uh, to to the tragedy that took place uh, there in some of those countries. So tell us a little bit about the work that EBF did uh, in uh, responding to the the floods in Western Europe. 
I'm going to pass on to Tony because uh, <laughs> I was in hibernation at that time, hiding from the floods because I live on a boat. Oh, and so when you live on a boat, flooding's a big concern. Uh. Uh, so Tony, Tony will pick that one up for you. <laughs> okay. okay, yeah, right. Well, well, the the the, the main place where the the floods happened actually was in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we had a couple of churches that were badly damaged, and of course communities where people lost their homes. Our support, actually, in the end, was one more of prayer and support and encouragement to the German Union. They were quite well resourced, so actually they they didn't need a lot of extra resources, but they did need to know that you know we were supporting them in in what was a tragedy, really, in uh, in certain parts of Germany. And so that's what we did. And I think that's what sometimes we can do well as EBF is to come round a union and a situation and say, well, what can we do? It's not always about sending money. I mean, we had earthquakes in Croatia and we needed to send resources to help that. But in Germany, it was a question of assuring them that we were there and we were there to help. And uh, we got the reports and, you know, kept in touch with the German Baptist Union. We appreciate uh, all the work that EBF did uh, for those churches and those people in in Western Europe uh, regarding the floods. Alan, um, you're beginning your tenure. One of the biggest issues on the global uh, scene right now is climate change and how Christians, in particular Baptists, can respond to climate change as caretakers of God's creation. So uh, tell us a little bit about kind of your vision for EBF and how to encourage Baptists in Europe to be more responsible when it comes to climate change. Yeah, thank you for that question. Now now you've landed on my home ground because, (laughs) of course, uh, COP26 is happening in Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. And the boat that I live on is is on the Forth and Clyde Canal, about six miles from Glasgow. So uh, I jog into Glasgow uh, at least once a week and back. Uh, so this is my home patch where all this is happening. And it's really important for our churches uh, to get on board with this. And uh, at our le- recent EBF Council just a couple of weeks ago, out in Amsterdam, we passed a, a new resolution together, a unanimous agreement on that resolution regarding COP26, calling our churches and unions and associations to really ramp up their activity in this area. Um, I remember about 15 years ago, I arrived uh, in a new church as a new pastor uh, in that congregation. And I said, is there any festival seasons that I need to know uh, to make sure in the diary? And they went, well, we celebrate harvest because we're a rural community and we celebrate Creation Sunday. And I went, Creation Sunday? What's Creation Sunday? And they said, oh, don't worry, just go speak to Barbara. So I went and spoke to Barbara. She works for an organization called Arosha. She's the international secretary of Arosha. And she basically looked at me in disgust, thinking that I knew nothing about Creation Sunday. But it was a day that had been set aside for the church to remember that they had been given a mandate in Scripture to care for creation. Mm-hmm. And that that mandate had not been lifted. Mm-hmm. And that church had for many, many years been teaching a theology of the redemption of creation and our responsibility to look after the world in which we live in. I was playing catch up when I arrived there. They were creative. On the Saturday night, they put the moth trap out in the back garden 
And on the Sunday, we had 30 different moths to look at in church as we arrived so that we could see the variety and the beauty of God's creation that is normally hidden from us because we're asleep in our beds at night. And we need to get the churches all over the world to wake up to the fact that we have a mandate in Scripture to care for the world that we live in. We should be leading this. It is a, it's almost an indictment against the people of God that we are having to follow others who have been caring for creation for so much longer. So whether it's like uh, the church in Glasgow, uh, which gave up coffee cups that get disposed of and got the whole congregation to purchase their own reusable cup and bring it every single week for the coffee and tea at the end of the service, whether it's my wife's bamboo toothbrush with carbon bristles that's completely recyclable, whether it's the fact that I've moved onto a boat so that our carbon footprint reduces to almost nothing compared to, to the massive footprint it was when I lived in a five-bedroom house with my wife on our own. And, and now we've asked all our unions to take that resolution away and say, what does it mean for you in your home? What does it mean for you in your church? How can you corporately work together to make that happen? And here in Glasgow, churches are doing all sorts of amazing things in the run-up to COP26. And they have creation care groups now meeting to give you ideas. I have my little wormery where all my food scraps go so that that mm. all gets turned into compost and food for the vegetables that I grow on the side of the canal. And uh, I, yeah, there's just so much creativity going on. And it's a time to look to the younger generation because they're a generation that, that, that were on this years ago and they've been waiting for their churches to catch up. Uh, and so I just keep looking to the young people around me, the kids around me, even some of the little children around me. And they are the ones who are able to teach us on, on this, how to move forward and how to learn more about loving this creation that is just so beautiful that God has given us. Okay, you had me at Wormery. I, I love, <laughs> I love that, <laughs> that concept. Uh, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Alan, for uh, leading the way, uh, being uh, caretakers for God's creation. That is uh, outstanding. Well, before we let you go, how can uh, Baptists here in the States, Christians here in the States, how can they partner with EBF churches and EBF uh you know, in, in a productive way, because, you know, eventually this pandemic and um, is going to be lifted, uh, restrictions are going to be lifted, we can start traveling again. Uh, how, how can a Baptist here in the States work with Baptist in Europe? Well, you've got to watch that traveling again thing. Because <laughs> if, if you start traveling too much, you're going to have a, a, an issue with the last question, which was about creation care. Ah, so yeah. we really got to watch our traveling, <laughs> right, look right. at how we're traveling, there you go. and ask the question, is the right thing to do to travel? Because sure. we can do virtual mission trips now. Mm. Uh, we can take you straight into a church planning situation in Ukraine, and, and you, your whole church can be there and, and see it. And, it, and it's possible to support church planting in Ukraine. We've been running a mission partnership program now for 18 years. Uh, we're just about to cross the 250th church plant in that program. And uh, these are all indigenous church planters, people who come from these nations. They already know the culture. They already speak the language. And with a little bit of funding, which mostly comes from Western Europe or from North America, 
uh, something in the region of 6,000 euros. What's that in dollars these days? About the same. It's not far off. And uh, we were able to plant a church for a year. Mm. And we support these mm. church planters for five years until they're self-sufficient and on their way. So that's one great way you can get in touch with our mission partnership program. And uh, local churches can do it. Whole unions can do it together. Uh, we have many supporters already in the States who are doing that for us, and it's great. And we've got half a dozen church planters waiting for funding right now. So that's yeah. a, that's an easy one. Uh, we also yeah. have a crisis in Lebanon just now that I'm yeah. sure you're aware of. Sure. Lebanon as a, as a nation has, has, to all intents and purposes, collapsed. Today we're hearing there's absolutely no fuel in the country mm. whatsoever which means there'll be no electricity in the country because um, they all rely on generators when the main grid goes off and stuff, which means there's going to be issues with purification of water, which means there's going to be issues with hunger. And folks aren't earning money and inflation is, is rife and the economy is collapsing. It's an absolutely horrendous situation right now. And so we've just launched an appeal to get support for the churches in Lebanon the details of which are on our website, ebf.org. And so we're crying out for folks to partner in that area and put some support into the hands of Baptists in Lebanon as they seek to not find a light at the end of the tunnel, as the local Lebanese people said, but to actually light lights in the mm. tunnel. Mm -hmm. Because any light at the end of the tunnel is a long, long, long way away mm. right now. So we're trying to help them put some lights on in the tunnel. And the same would also be true in eastern Ukraine. As winter approaches, the need for blankets and stoves and ceramic heaters is absolutely huge. So we put out a second appeal uh, for, for that support as well. So there's some real practical stuff that's out there just yeah. now within our area. But Tony will have more. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say a word about this word partnership. Uh, because uh, over the years, uh, of course, I've experienced many who, who want to be our partners. And if I can put it positively, the, the partners that we really appreciate are the ones who come right alongside us and say, what is your situation? How, how could we best support you? How can this be a mutual partnership? And from North America, there's been some excellent examples of that. For instance, Virginia Baptists um, have done a great job in, in different parts of Europe, not least the situation in Austria that uh, Alan was mentioning earlier on. So we really like those kind of partners. Um, and there's, there are good examples of them um, from even outside Europe and, and where they come and say, we're, we're in with you for the long haul. Then this is great. Well, you can find out more about European Baptist work at ebf.org. Make certain you check them out and all the good things that they are doing over there. Tony, Alan, thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. But before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question for you. Yes, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your mission at EBF and everything we've talked about today, what is your more to tell? My more to tell, I think, would be the, con the continuation of this process of learning to be an example of unity in diversity. And, and that's not easy, but 
you know, I feel that the EPF has been on a journey of this, and I think under Alan, it'll continue on the journey, and and it is that learning to live with that other who is different from me, but whom I can find a deep unity as we recognize each other as Christian disciples. And Alan, you got the last uh, word. I get the last word, and I want I want to the word two words are positive deviance. I think watch out for positive deviance. What is growing in the margins? What is happening on the edges that God is blessing and and using? Uh, and start asking questions of those people. And uh, I think that's that's a good word for the future. I love that. Positive deviance. Thank you so much. Tony Allen, appreciate uh, you being with us this week on Good Faith Weekly. Uh, we are excited about uh, our partnership with EBF and all the good work the Baptists are doing all across Europe. And so uh, blessings to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Autumn. Thanks, Mitch. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. And uh, as always, until next time, keep living good faith.